The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Bibles again to the book of Acts, chapter 2. There is a little green uh, note sheet in your bulletin there. You can follow along with that if you would like to. And there's uh, plenty of space on the back to take your own notes if you'd like to do that as well. There's a story told of a a great violin player. Uh, I'm going to guess his name was Paganini. And, And Christopher can tell me if that was right or not after the service. But the story goes that he was playing in a great concert and he had this violin. And as he was praying, playing away, and the music was brilliant. And his playing was just amazing. And halfway through the final piece, there was a sickening snap. And one string flopped lazily off the end of his violin. And Paganini didn't even slow down. He kept right on going. He's playing away, and the notes are brilliant, the, the runs are soaring, and, and halfway through, a little bit longer, so not halfway through, a bit further down, there's another sickening snap. Now he's down to two strings, and Paganini is playing away. Doesn't even slow down, doesn't miss a beat yet again. You never guess what happened close to the end of that song. There is yet a third sickening snap, and Paganini finishes on one string. Apparently, he held up his violin. And in in that unique Italian way, he said, a Paganini on a one string. And everybody clapped. A man came up to him after the the concert and said, I want to play like that. I want to be a violin player like that. Paganini looked at him and he said, it's impossible. He says, why? You do it. And Paganini said, I started when I was a little boy, a wee boy. And I began to play and I practiced and I practiced and I practiced. And I devoted myself for all of my life to learning and mastering the violin. You're simply too old. You don't have enough time left to devote yourself like that. I think every one of us in in the the things that we enjoy. I'm a woodworker. I, I love woodworking. And to see somebody who can take and with the, the skill and use of tools of watching these uh, Japanese woodworkers and they, they use these planes called kana planes and they peel off these shavings that are one and two microns thick and 12 inches wide and 20 feet long. There's a skill. They've devoted themselves to that task. Paganini devoted himself and his life to the playing and the mastering of the violin. And we see the evidence of their devotion in their lives. Oftentimes you hear people nowadays talking about the early church and the great things that the early church accomplished. Or to put it more accurately, the great things that God accomplished through the early church. And one of the things that marked the early church, and if I had to say what would be one difference between us and them, was that there was a devotion, there was a commitment that that early church exercised. A devotion to God above all other things. And they saw God do great things. I have a question for you. Has God changed? No. Praise God for whoever said that out loud. No, he hasn't changed. Our God is the same God that created the heavens and the earth with a word. Our God is the same God who came down and stood on Mount Sinai and the mountain shook and the smoke and the thunder and the rumbling, all of that. It's the same God that we worship. But I wonder, brothers and sisters, as I consider my own life and all of us need to consider our lives, what is the devotion that we have to Christ? And I'm not saying this as a you, you, you. I'm saying this as a me, 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 we, we. Meaning that this is a question that all of us need to consider. What is our devotion to Christ? 
And just thinking back now in this moment and the, the journey I took while I was in Canada and the different folks I came across and the different conversations I had. If you're on Facebook, and that's a mixed blessing, I'll give you that much, you'll see a picture of an elderly man in a restaurant with two of us young guys. And he's just sitting there, and in front of him is this huge Bible, and it's Uncle Jack. And I think Uncle Jack is in his late 80s, early 90s. And for we went out for lunch, and for an hour and a half, he ate, I think, two bites of his macaroni and cheese, pushed it aside, got his Bible out, opened it, opened it in the middle of the restaurant, and for the next hour and three quarters or what, an hour and a half, he just taught us from the Bible. He was a man, he is a man, who is devoted to God and devoted to the study of the Word of God. And as he unfolded the Scriptures and compared Scripture with Scripture and text with text in a beautiful way, I sat back and marveled. This man has got of the world's things nothing of significance. But he's a man who goes into a coffee shop every morning, Monday through Friday at 7 o'clock in the morning. He says, I just take my Bible into the coffee shop, and I sit down in my coffee shop, and I get myself a cup of coffee, and I put my Bible on the table in front of me, and I just wait. And within half an hour or 40 minutes, he has a conversation going, and he has conversations about the Lord all through the day. And he can open the Scriptures, and he can answer questions, and he can meet people's needs. God works through him to meet people's needs from the Scripture. He's a man who is devoted to God. And what marked this early church is a devotion to Christ. Now once you see what happened, how they got to this spot, we've been camped on Acts 2.42 and those four great activities of the church. We're finishing up with the last one, their devotion to prayer. But I want you to see how they got there. In Luke 24, verse 49, as Jesus is about to go back up to heaven, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And he's speaking of the coming Holy Spirit. We can see in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 or 2, sorry, 12 into 14 there, how they've gone back into Jerusalem. They're all together in the upper room, and the Bible says they devoted themselves to prayer. Remember back when the disciples come out and they see Jesus in Luke 11 and he's praying. And you almost see the scene as Jesus is maybe on his knees and he's crying out to God with his heart felt prayer. And the disciples are allowed to come just close enough. And the movement, the speaking of Jesus in prayer to his father is so impressive and so powerful that they stand and listen. And when he is finished, one of them, and you can almost hear the tremble in his voice as he says, Lord, teach us to pray. They never asked him to teach him anything else. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to cast out demons. Lord, teach us to make the blind see. Lord, teach us to make the deaf hear. But they did ask him this one thing. Lord, teach us to pray. And these men and go up in the upper room and with 120 in total, including the 11 disciples and then Matthias is added, they devoted themselves to prayer. And we know the great scene in Acts 2, verses 1 to 5, as the Holy Spirit comes and fills them, and there's great power, and there's the glory of the Spirit coming, and they're filled with that joy and the Spirit, and they rush out into the streets, and they begin preaching the gospel. And Peter stands up, and he begins to speak the gospel, and he unfolds it for them, and there's a power in his preaching. This same man who 40, 50 days ago had denied the Lord three times with oaths, now stands and declares the gospel of God. In Acts 2, verse 37, the listeners to Peter's sermon are cut to the heart. And I am convinced that's the work of the Spirit of God applying that message and deeply engraving it on their hearts. And then in Acts 2.41, we see that there is a reception to Peter's words. There is repentance unto salvation. There is a baptism that identifies these new believers with Christ and the church. And the early church shows its devotion to Christ. In baptism, they display devotion to Christ by saying, we want to identify ourselves with Him, with this Jesus. 
In Acts 2.42, we see their devotion to Christ there. As they adhere, they fasten themselves onto the apostles' doctrine. There is a devotion to Christ to know who he is, what he said, all the things he did. They wanted to know about this Jesus. There was a devotion to Jesus in adhering to the apostles' doctrine. In 2.42 again, there is a devotion to Christ in the fellowship, the, the, the binding together of those believers and the fellowship they have with God. They devote themselves to Christ in partaking of that fellowship of the believers together. And we saw a few weeks ago about the great need for the church to be together. The relationship that is formed between brothers and sisters in Christ. We can see number four there, remembering the Lord in the breaking of bread. That's devotion to Christ. They're not just going through the ritual, the religious motions of taking bread and taking wine and remembering Christ. They come together with a devotion to remember and enjoy and savor Christ to remember what it cost that they might have life, to remember the one who suffered and died for them. It's devotion. And finally, prayer displays their devotion to Christ as they commune and they relate with Jesus Christ. Where must our devotion be focused, brothers and sisters? If we were to look at your life or if you were to look at my life and examine the things I read, examine the things on my computer, examine my time, how I spend my time, what would it display about my devotion? What am I most devoted to? What am I most committed to? And in this little snapshot of Acts 2, 42 to 47, we can see what they were devoted to. They were devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. They devoted themselves to those five activities as an expression of their relationship and devotion to Christ. And the question we must ask of ourselves is what is our devotion? What are we devoted to? What are we committed to? But not only that, I would argue that prayer is the high point, the pinnacle of those four activities. I don't think the Spirit of God just threw them out one, two, three, four in a random order. I believe He gave them to Luke in a specific order. And there is a progression, a climbing motion as you go through those activities. It starts with baptism, publicly identifying themselves with Christ. And then it moves the apostles' doctrine that informs them of Christ so that when they pray, they know who they are praying to. They know how they are supposed to pray they know what God can do in answering their prayers. They also know the Old Testament relationship to Christ and how he fulfills all of those old promises. And so the apostles' doctrine is step one. The fellowship with Christ and the church is the basis on which they and we pray. We pray to God through Christ because there is a fellowship between us and God. And we pray on behalf of one another because we have a fellowship and a relationship with each other. Fellowship was the basis of their prayer. The breaking of bread reminded them of the price paid, the finished work. It reminded them of the fact that no longer must they bring an animal to the temple. No longer must they lay their hands on its head and cut its throat and gather the blood. All of that has been done. And whether they're in the upper room or walking along the way or out in the fields or on the boat fishing, whatever they are doing, they can enter and access the very presence of God. They must not go to the shore and walk to Jerusalem and go up to the temple and do all the stuff to get in close to pray. They can access God wherever they are. And the breaking of bread reminded them of that. Prayer is the communication. It's the response of all those things. Prayer is, in fact, the high point of all those activities. As a preacher and a pastor, I'd love to say it was the preaching of the apostles' doctrine that was the high point. But it's not. I don't take lightly the fact that the disciples asked Jesus not how to preach, but how to pray. 
So the prayer that they offered is an expression of their devotion to Christ. I heard a story about, um, it was back in the, I guess, the 18th century. And this pastor fellow was in, invited this man to come to his home for dinner. And he had heard that this man was a great man of God. And he sat around the dinner table and he thought, well, he'll ask him some very difficult questions to discover just the depth of this man's understanding. And so he started asking him questions and, and the man gave him very shallow responses to which the other man politely and gently from the scriptures corrected him. He said the next day they were walking along and they were going past a hedgerow and he heard a voice rising up from behind the hedgerow. And it was this man who had come to visit this great man of God. And he was crying out in prayer for his host and the church and the family. And he said the man who did the inviting was walking along and he just kind of paused to listen. And he realized that this man was a great man of God. And while he did not answer those questions the way the other man wanted him to, he saw in his prayer life, he heard when he thought nobody was watching and nobody was listening, he saw the depth of his devotion to God as he cried out to God in prayer. I heard another story about a Puritan preacher and pastor. He used to go up into the barn in, in, back in the Puritan days. The pastors, uh, many of them were farmers and other things. They, they, they earned their living Besides being in a pulpit, they were often tradesmen and farmers and so on. Well, this man had a farm. And in his barn across the way, there was like a hayloft up above all the rest of where the animals were kept. And he would go up there and he would cry out to God, but he wouldn't pray like this. He prayed like this. His voice lifted up. They said the, the men working in the barnyard were just staggered because as they were working away in the fields or maybe working with the animals in the barnyard, they could hear this man's voice as he cried out to God for the salvation of the farm workers and cried out to God for the salvation and the growth of those in his church. And his voice carried across the whole barnyard and all could hear the prayer of this man. See, what's the point? The point is they were devoted to God and they expressed that devotion in the way they prayed. Well, we need to ask a question then. What is prayer? We can talk about prayer all day long, but what is prayer? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it like this. Prayer is the offering up of our desires to God for things in agreement to his will, in the name of Jesus Christ, with confession of our sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Close quote. Prayer is when poor, weak, destitute and needy men and women, boys and girls, cry out to the only one able to strengthen, comfort, enrich and supply all of our needs. But not just our needs. According to each measure of need, he's able to supply exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that we could ask or think. That's what prayer is. To pray is to plead the promises of God. To plead with God to fulfill His promises that He made to us. Brothers and sisters, as you go through your daily reading in the Scriptures, look out for those promises and plead them from God. Turn the Scriptures as you read them into expressions of prayer to the living God. To pray in the words of Isaiah 55 and verse 6, is to seek the Lord, to seek His face, His presence, while He may be found. To go in prayer and cry out to God to seek His presence and His face in our lives. To pray, to truly pray, is to be like the psalmist's deer in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. The deer who thirsts and pants for the living God. Prayer is to yearn to know to speak to, to hear, to be with God, who is our soul's greatest and sweetest joy. I'm very thankful for modern communications, iPhones and text messaging and all that. And if you looked at the text messages that went back and forth between my wife and I while I was away, as I got closer to getting home, aside from the big break when I was on the airplane, you're not supposed to text. Well, you're not supposed to text. But anyway, uh, the text message flew back and forth. And all I wanted to do was to get down and I wanted to see Heather so bad because I missed her. I've been away from her for 12 days and I got to the customs immigration. And you know what they did to you, don't you? You go in that line over there 
and the line had like 500 people with two customs guys, and there's a straight line right the way through. And I went back and and forth in the line over like what seemed like 12 hours of, you know, and I'm thinking, this is torture. I wanted to see Heather. I wanted to come through those doors and see her smiling face waiting for me on the other side. And the psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for God. Prayer is the expression of that thirst that craves to be in the presence of God, to see His face, to hear His voice, to listen as He speaks into the depths of our soul, to feed us and encourage us as we pour out our difficulties and struggles before God. Prayer is also the highest point and the highest expression of worship. I mentioned before that Jesus said in Mark eleven seventeen, My Father's house shall be called a house of prayer. God created us for relationship and fellowship with Him. And conversation is the greatest expression of that fellowship, the relationship that we have with another person. And the greatest tragedy about the garden was that when God came back, After the man and woman had committed the sin, he called out from a distance and all he could say is, where are you? What have you done? And that relationship had been broken by their sin. And brothers and sisters, prayer is the expression of that relationship. Worship is the greatest expression. Sorry, prayer is the greatest expression of worship. When we come together as God's people, we come together to pray. Yes, we come together to read the Word of God. And yes, we come together to sing. But if you would take all those other things away and we just came together to pray, we could worship like the same. And if not better. If someone said to me, you can change Noble Park Baptist Church one way, assuming I have 20 years here until I'm 70, And they said to me, you can change Noble Park Baptist Church one way, one change, that's it. Make it wisely. I wouldn't have to think. I know exactly what I would do. It's a good thing you're all sitting down while I tell you this. I'd start church at 9.30 in the morning. And we would come into this place and we would sit down and for one hour we would pray. I don't mean talk about prayer requests. I don't mean talk about the people we're praying for. We would simply pray. All the other changes, I wouldn't have to ask for them because in that simple activity, they would begin to happen on their own. So maybe you don't want to ask me what I want to do to change the church. But I believe with all my heart that if we did that, brothers and sisters in Christ, we would see this world, our world changed. I'm absolutely convinced if we came together and we devoted the whole church, all of us. This is not the prayer before the service. This is prayer as the service. If we came together and devoted one hour of unrestrained, concentrated prayer to God, crying out to God to meet with us and speak to us, crying out to God to change our lives, change our ways, to see the unsaved saved. I'm convinced that God would do great things. Prayer is the highest expression of worship. Prayer is the purest expression of faith. By faith, we ask God for for things. By faith, we seek God's presence, His will, and His blessing. By faith, when we come into God's presence, we are coming trusting that He will hear us. <coughs> Excuse me. Prayer is an expression of faith, the purest form. We can do all kinds of things in faith. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice. By faith, George Mueller built an uh, orphanage and saved thousands of young lives. But when we come together or when we come into our closet and get down on our knees and we begin to cry out to God, we are simply crying out in faith that God will answer a prayer. It's the purest expression of faith. By faith, we seek God's presence and his will. By faith, we knock 
in prayer to determine God's will. By faith, we call Him Father. Do you ever stop and think about that? It's an expression of our faith that we say, Father in heaven. That relationship made by God is, I'm going to use a bad word, I can't find a good word to say this, but it's, it's built on faith. It's expressed through faith. It's tied together by faith as we trust that God will hear our prayer and answer our prayer. By faith we speak, trusting Him to hear. By faith we approach, trusting Him to accept us for Christ's sake. Faith comes to God and says, I need thee every hour. Prayer, sorry, prayer comes to God and says that prayer approaches in reverent boldness like children to a father. I think it was one of the Hodges, two great theologians, both the last name Hodge. And one of them was coming to his new uh, residence at the university where he was going to teach. And the, the university deacons took him over to the residence and said, Mr. President, this is your new residence here. I will take you through the house and we'll make a list of all the things that you would like changed about the president's manner here at the university and before you move in. And they went through all the whole house and Mr. Hodge didn't say a word. And the deacons are kind of looking at each other like, oh, well. And finally they finished the tour and they said, Mr. Hodge, what would you like changed? And he said, I have just one change. He said, what's that? He said, you see my study door? And he said, yeah. I want the doorknob lowered about two feet. What? He said, I want it brought down near here. He said, I have a one-year-old boy, and I want him to be able to walk up and reach up and great dad's study door and just push it open and walk right in. And that's what it is with our father. He has, in a sense, lowered the doorknob. He's made it so that all of us can enter in, and prayer comes, and it's like access into the father's presence with a reverence and a boldness that goes together. Prayer recognizes the holiness and the attributes of God. Prayer pleads and seeks for God's will to be done in the same manner in which it is done in heaven. We plead for God's will to be done in each other's lives. We need to stop and think about that for a moment. Pleading with God's will in my life might mean cancer for me. It might mean Great loss and great sorrow. You say, would God want you to go through great loss and great sorrow? Well, the reality is that God may have so many great things to teach me through great loss and great sorrow that His will is exactly that. Pleading for God's will to be done in each of our lives is what prayer is about. Prayer brings the power of God, the knowledge of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God, not to mention the love of God to bear on our life and our situations. We come before God in prayer and we plead the grace of God in each other's lives. We plead, we plead for the mercy of God to be over each other's lives. We plead for the power of God to be exercised in each other's lives to make us more like Christ. Prayer, as in the lives of these early believers, brings the Holy Spirit of God to act and speak and work. Prayer, by the way, is impossible without the enabling, empowering ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives. One of the reasons why we don't want to hinder the Spirit of God's work in our life is that our prayers might not be hindered. We don't want to quench the work of the Spirit of God because when we begin to pray, and as Spurgeon said, pray until you truly pray. In other words, pray, cry out to God until you feel your heart rising up to meet God and God speaking in response. And when we pray like that, the Spirit of God begins to lead. I love those moments. You know those moments when you're praying? And it's like one person, one thought, one thing just rolls on. One after the other, after the other, after the other. I was studying this for this on, uh, I think, Thursday or Friday. I can't remember which one in my office there. And I was going through dictionaries. I was looking up verses and reading this and reading that. And you know the one, the one word that keeps rattling around in my head? You know what it was? You'll never guess. Pray. <laughs> okay. There's a thought. 
And I pushed all my books and my computer aside, and I just put my head down on my desk and began to pray. And for 40 minutes, the Spirit of God just led in prayer. And one thought, one person, one name came to mind after another, after another, after another. And God led in prayer. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the prayer is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. These early disciples, these early believers filled with the Spirit were devoted to Christ through the practice of prayer. Prayer is impossible. Prayer is the expression of our devotion to Christ. Sorry, prayer is impossible without the work of the Spirit of God. So the question must also be asked, so why must we pray? Why pray? We have the Word of God. We know what we're supposed to be doing. We can go out and preach. We know those things. We can read the the Word of God, the Spirit of God's own words encoded in Scripture. Why pray? Well, number one, prayer is commanded by God. We're called by God to respond in prayer. But did you know something else? Prayer affects God. We were singing a little while ago about how God never changes. You've got to be careful how you understand the unchangeableness of God. God is unchangeable in his person. God is unchangeable in his purposes. And God is unchangeable in the promises he makes. He never makes a promise and says, ah, forget it, pull it away. He makes those and he's unchangeable in them. But God is also a relational God. He relates to us. We ask, to, we have not, why? Because we Ask not. I believe God waits to answer prayer because he wants to see us in total dependence on our knees before God, crying out to God to answer something. There are also times recorded in Scripture where the prayers of a man change God's plan for a people. Say, where's that? Exodus 32. I heard someone say it back there. Exodus 32, remember the scene? Moses is up on the mountain. And he's speaking with God and they're going through the law. And all of a sudden God says, let me alone in my anger that I may destroy the nation for its sin. What would you do? I know what I'd do. I'd be halfway on the mountain by now. You know what Moses did? In effect, what Moses did was say, no. I won't let you alone. And he began to plead with God. Think of it, brothers and sisters. One puny little pile of clay dared to stand before the almighty God in his anger and his wrath and say, no, Lord, don't do it. And one man interceded for a whole nation in prayer and God relented from his plan. God was going to destroy the nation of Israel and make a new people out of Moses. And the end of that time, you know what God did? He said, I will go with you. And they designed and put together the tabernacle and God's presence went with the people through the rest of their journeys because one man stood in the presence of God who was angry with the people of God and said, no, Lord, don't do that. Think about your reputation, Lord. That's literally what he said. God hears prayer. We pray because God is a relating God. God hears prayer. God answers prayer. God delays to answer prayer. There are times when we begin to pray and before the words are halfway out of our mouth, God is already rising to answer. I can give you a story about where that exact thing happened. I walked out to my door and I began to pray to God. I pleaded with God to provide a building for a church we were planting. And by the time I got back, there was an email sitting on my computer that had already come before I began to pray saying, by the way, we've got a space available for you. It's the perfect space, which we already knew that. And God had already answered the prayer before I'd even begun to pray. And there are times when God delays to answer. I told you before about the story about George Mueller. For 19 years, he prayed for a man to come to know the Lord. 19 years. I couldn't even do the math. 7,000, 8,000 days. Day in, day out, he pleaded with God. Please, Lord, save this man. And God saved him. After 19 years of steadfast prayer. Why do we pray? 
We pray because God hears prayer. We pray because God answers prayer. We pray because God delays to answer prayer. Don't give up. Listen, I don't know every situation in the room. I don't know every life and what's going on in your lives, but I'm convinced that there are some people in this room who have been crying out to God for change in son's life or daughter's life or parent's life or family's life, and you're beginning to flag and fail in your devotion. Don't give up. Please don't give up. Keep praying because God delays for his purposes, but God always answers prayer. I want you to show you something else too. God rewards prayer. Take your Bibles, flip over to uh, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Some of you already know the verse before I even read it to you. Now give credit where credit is due as well. Listening to a sermon by Paul Washer, and he made this point. And I thought, man, that is so powerful. I got to share it. God rewards prayer. Look what he says in Romans, or not Romans, sorry, Hebrews 11. And we'll read verse 1, and then we'll jump down to verse 6. So verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then in verse 6, the writer says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do we always ask for the right thing in prayer? No. And we make mistakes. Sometimes it's like a little child comes to his father and he pleads with his daddy for something and the daddy just knows there's no way that I can do that. In his case, his failing issue. The the weakness of the father can't answer that little request of his son. And sometimes we as believers come and we ask for things that God has not designed to give us. We ask for things that are not appropriate. But do you know what I'm absolutely convinced of? And Paul Washer made this point, and i got, I got to make it for us too. It just convicted me. I'm convinced that when we go to God in prayer and we cry out to God and we pour out the desires of our heart before God, And maybe God, for his purposes, is not going to answer that prayer the way we want it answered. But I'm also convinced of this, that God will reward the fact that we are praying. Because look what the writer says. He says, he rewards those who seek him. Or if you have a New King James, I love that they had a word there. He rewards those who diligently seek him. Meaning what? The meaning when we go to God in prayer and we cry out to God and we plead with God to hear our prayers, we're praying for the salvation of a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter. We're praying for some change, some great change in someone's life. We're praying for God to meet needs in the, in the church, whatever those things are. And we pour out our desires before God in faith that God will hear and answer. Whether or not God gives that exact thing or not, I am also convinced that God rewards the diligence. He will change us. He will change that person. He will answer the prayer in some way. But He will reward the one who is praying. So brother and sister, don't give up. Carry on. Plead with God in prayer. God hears our prayer. God answers our prayer. God rewards our prayer, but God also changes the prayer. Moses was changed by that encounter. Can you imagine Moses coming down the mountain exactly the same way he went up after standing before God and saying that and seeing God relent? Joshua stood before God and cried out to God that the sun and the moon would stand still. And God, for the first time, listened to the prayers of a man and he stopped the motion of the sun and the earth for 24 hours and the battle carried on the valley below and they won the battle. You think Joshua wasn't changed? Convinced he was. Nehemiah. Know the story of Nehemiah? Nehemiah is in the suit of the capital. He's the cupbearer of the king. His brother comes with news about the city of Jerusalem. The gates are burned. The walls are broken down. The people are in disrepute and disrepair. What does he do? He sits down and he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays for three months. You think it didn't change him? 
I guarantee you it changed him. Why must we pray? We pray because God commands it. We pray because God hears. We pray because God answers. We pray because God delays to answer. We pray because God rewards our prayer. We pray because God is glorified by us when we pray. When we cry out to God and say, you alone can meet this need. That honors and glorifies God. As we wrap it up, I want to give you some motivation, some encouragements to pray. Matthew 8, sorry, Mark 8, verse 24 to 30. You can look it up later. It's the story of the Canaanite woman. And she comes to Jesus and says, My daughter is sick. Will you heal her? And Jesus delays to answer. And in one rendition of the story, I believe the disciples come on and say, Would you make her go away? And finally, he makes a statement to her about, You know what? We first we feed the children. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs lick up the crumbs that fall from the table. And he turns around her and he says, never have I found such great faith. And he commends her for her faith and he answers her prayer. She prayed and she would not give up. You know the story about the widow and the judge, right? She comes and she bangs on his door and she demands and pleads for justice. And the Bible describes a just, the judge as an unjust judge. And he finally says, oh, unless she basically drive me to distraction, I'm just going to hear and answer her call. And Jesus makes the statement that God who is God and absolutely just, how much greater will he hear and answer? But the widow's persistent praying, persistent pleading with the judge, and the judge eventually heard. Nehemiah who prayed in an anguish. If you're on YouTube or you have access to YouTube, there is a sermon you can look up. It's uh, David Wilkerson. Uh, he's of a Pentecostal persuasion, but he preaches a great sermon called A Plea for Anguish. And it's a plea, and he, he describes some of his own experiences with the Lord. And God took him to places. And when he went into New York City in the 1950s, he began to work reaching out to the gangs of New York City, the Mau Mau's and Nicky Cruz. Some of you know the story, crossing the switchblade. That's the guy we're talking about. He said God brought him a number of times in his life and ministry to a place of anguish where in great grieving of heart he cried out to God for an answer to a situation that just was causing anguish in his own heart. Nehemiah was a man just like that. In anguish as he heard about the disrepute of the Lord's name because of the gates and the wall in Jerusalem. In Luke 6, Jesus goes up on the mountaintop and Jesus, we often say if anybody didn't need to pray, that would be Jesus, surely. But Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. He pleaded with God for wisdom as he chose his disciples. Jesus, and this is what I want to finish with in Luke 22. Take your Bibles, let's go there. Luke 22. In Luke 22, verses 39 to 46. The Bible says that he, being Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He said, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Brothers and sisters, where was the battle won for the souls of men? And I would argue the battle was won for the souls of men. A stone's throw from sleeping disciples as Jesus was on his face before God and he fought the battle there. Not my will, but thine be done. 
Words that you and I will never understand. We often forget that Jesus, even though he is truly God, he is also truly man. And as truly man, he needed, he craved fellowship and communion with his heavenly father. And he prayed there and he won the battle in the garden. The cross, obviously, he went to the cross and there his blood was shed. And there he endured the agony of the pain of being separated from his father. But the resolve, the dedication, the devotion to do the Father's will, that battle was won in the garden. And when he walked out of the garden and the soldiers came close to him to arrest him, they took his hands and they bound his hands. But they didn't realize for a split second they were binding the hands of the victor. He'd already won the battle. And brothers and sisters, what I want to get across to us as a church is the battle to see revival happen in this church is not won through preaching like this. This is a part of it, but the battle for that is won in the prayer closet. The battle to see lives changed, men and women grow up and be more like Christ, that battle is won when we pray. The greatest scene, the greatest battle this church goes through each week is not in this room. It's in that room on Wednesday night when we begin to pray for one another. It's Thursday morning we get together and pray for one another. It's in every prayer closet of every person in this church as they go alone by themselves and cry out to God and plead with God to work and act in this church. We want to see change. We want to see revival. I'm not talking about just a great fervor and a great zeal. I mean real biblical Holy Spirit revival. Men and women repenting of sin, coming to know Christ. Men and women putting aside sin, putting away sinful habits. Men and women who are raised up to go out and preach the gospel and reach the nations for Christ. It's not going to happen just through preaching. It's going to happen primarily in prayer. Jesus won the battle in the garden. You and I will win the battle on our knees in our prayer closet. Back to Acts chapter 2. The Bible says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They devoted themselves to Christ through those activities. Brothers and sisters, I got to ask us all the same question. Where's your devotion? What is your devotion to Christ? What's mine? I don't know about you, but I'm I'm sick and tired of playing at Christianity. I'm sick and tired of playing at church. Of going through the motions getting dressed up, coming to church, singing some hymns, praying some prayers, listening to a sermon, going home, nothing changing. I'm absolutely convinced that we're not here to just go through a ritual and emotion. I'm convinced that we're not here to just do what we do on Sunday morning so we can get back to our regular real lives on Monday to Friday. I'm convinced that this... The relationship with Christ, our relationship with the living God, that's the real thing. I'm convinced, and brothers and sisters, the battle is fought and won in prayer. The reason why this church, you keep reading the stories and the things that were happening. How did it happen? It happened because they were devoted to Christ through prayer, through fellowship, through breaking of bread, and through the apostles' doctrine. I want to see Noble Park reach for Christ. And I'm convinced that there are more than just me who want to see that. I'm convinced that God wants to see Noble Park reach for Christ. I'm convinced that God wants to see the men and women in this church come up to maturity, to grow up, to become the great prayer warriors, the great preachers and missionaries and pastors of a next generation. But we're not going to do it if we don't have that same devotion that they had to the Lord through prayer. So what's your what's your go-to? What's your the thing to take away to put in action for the rest of this week and the rest of your lives? It's this one word, four letters. Pray. Become a people of prayer.
for those of you who already are people, men and women of prayer. And I know there are some godly men and women in this church who devote time to prayer. I would say, keep going. Don't stop. Carry on. Okay, let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for his tremendous example that he set for us, continuing all night in prayer, going into the garden alone, separated even from his closest friends, pouring out his heart and his soul in prayer pleading not for His will, but for Yours. Father, we pray, we cry out to You, O God, that You would do a great work in the lives of every one of us, that we would become a people of prayer, we would continue to be a people of prayer, that we would be steadfast in prayer, unwavering in our commitment to pray, Father, I am convinced from Scripture, from Jesus' words, that you did not design your church to be a house of theatrics or a house of great music or a house of many other things that the church is slowly becoming. But you designed and planned for your church to be a house of prayer, committed to prayer, pleading with God in prayer. Father, we know from the example of Jesus that the battles are won in prayer. And Lord, we pray that you would just do whatever is necessary in every one of our lives. Father, pull the rug of our self-reliance out from underneath us. It drops us on our face before you. Father, we plead with you that you would do a great work through Noble Park Baptist Church. Father, I cry out to you and I plead with you for every single elder in this church, every single deacon, Lord, for the Sunday school teachers, Lord, for the young people. Oh, God, I cry out to you for the young people in this church. Lord, the snares and the lures of the world are steadily drawing young people away from you. Father, I cry out to you that you would put a hedge around them, that their lives might not be wasted in the silly pursuit of wealth and fame and fortune, but their lives might be used powerfully for your glory, that they would be the next generation of Spurgeons and Livingstons, great men who did great things because they served and loved and were thoroughly dependent on a great God. Father, we ask you these things. We plead with you, O God, for your work in this church. We give you thanks again, O God, for a time together in fellowship, in worship, in prayer, and in the word. We seek your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.